Appreciate that. Ladies, thank you. It's been great uh, songs tonight, and they've, uh, it's always a blessing to me and an encouragement to me. They've ministered to me already in the fact that it, uh, it solidifies thoughts in my mind and preparation and uh, the songs about him being our anchor and our rock, and uh, then the choir uh, meshing so perfectly with the offertory and uh, the wonderful name of Jesus and, uh, and how glorious his name is, how amazing he is, wonderful counselor, mighty God. The Prince of Peace, and, uh, and so uh, it's all meshed together so nicely uh, this evening, and I trust uh, that your heart is prepared as well to receive what the Lord has for you through the preaching. And uh, in just a couple short weeks from now, uh, we'll be having our annual spring revival, and uh, Brother Moon will be with us, and certainly looking forward to that. And uh, the idea tonight is to kind of, and over the next couple weeks, as while pastor's away, I'm going to plant seeds as we go along through different services in preparing for revival. And, uh, and just to maybe set a tone in our hearts, and it makes all the difference in the world when a heart is prepared to receive something. Break up the fallow ground, the Bible says. Uh, there's that, that hard shell that develops on the top surface of a, a farmer's soil, and uh, it's impenetrable. Uh, the, the seed will not get down deep enough to, to take root and to produce fruit. And, but when that fallow ground is broken up in preparation for the seeds to be cast into our heart, uh, the work of God can be done so much more quickly and efficiently in our lives. Uh, we are, and let's be honest, 
with ourselves at least, with no one else, we are a distracted society. We have an attention span of a gnat, and, uh, and so uh, we, 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 we start looking at something, and we're over here, and here, you know, the, the old squirrel, <laughs> you know, uh, mentality where we can't stay focused on anything for very long, and, uh, and that's where we're at today. And uh, we've, got to, we've got to break that mold if God is going to be able to work in our hearts and our lives. We've got to be able to focus on what he wants for us. We come to church so inundated, and I know these are, I'm just speaking uh, from the heart, honestly, because I, I know these are all things we hear so regularly. But we come so uh, regularly to church uh, with the concerns of this life. It's so hard to peel them off <laughs> in time for the Lord to work before the service ends. And, uh, and so I trust that this will be an encouragement as we lead up to revival. And uh, obviously we understand, I think we're all well aware that uh, revival is not scheduled. <laughs> uh, revival is not uh, something you put on a calendar and it just uh, miraculously happens. Uh, it is something that uh, requires work. It requires work on our behalf. And the Lord working in us for it to be accomplished, the will and do of His good pleasure in our lives. And, uh, and so, if you would, let's jump over to start into a very familiar passage in 2 Chronicles chapter number 7. 2 Chronicles chapter number 7. We'll read a, a few verses over here and uh, then move a little further into the Old Testament, and we'll be jumping around all over the place tonight, but 2 Chronicles chapter number 7. Let's do something a little different this evening. How about we read responsively, all right? I'm going to read the first verse, you read the next, back to me, and then I'll read uh, verse 15, and then we'll read verse 16 together, all right? And so I'm going to start off. We're going to read Second uh, uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verse number 12 through 16, and I'll begin. It says, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. Read together, verse 13. If I shut up heaven, there be no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people. If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear, uh, heal their land. Verse 15, Now mine eyes shall be open and my ears attend unto thy prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. We often read this verse in promise of the, the recipe for revival. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will hear, heal their land. Now, obviously, in context, and as Pastor is teaching us about rightly dividing the word of truth, uh, this is not a promise to the New Testament church. This is a promise to Old Testament saints. This is instruction given to a people, uh, specifically a promise given to Solomon, who had just completed building the temple. It had been all that time that his father wished to build the temple, and he was not permitted because of his, uh, his um, bloody lifestyle. 
And, uh, and so he wasn't permitted to do so, but his son Solomon was. And so here's Solomon finally completed the temple, and the Lord is making a commitment. Hey, Solomon, I will be there. I will be there for you. This will be my habitation. This will be my house of sacrifice. I will come here, and, and this is where I'll dwell. And if my people ever backslide, if they turn from me, and I have to send pestilence in the land, if I have to send punishment and correction, for whom the Lord, the Lord loveth, he correcteth. If I ever have to do that, then if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'm going to be right here. I'm going to be right where I told you I would be. You're not going to have to search high and low. You're going to know exactly where I am. And if, if you desire it, if you want it, I'll be there for you. While in context, the promise is to the Old Testament saint in, in practical application, there is nothing different for the New Testament believer. It's the same process. God has and is in that one place. He is accessible. He has made us high priests. And he has given us access greater than even those Old Testament saints who knew to go to the temple to offer sacrifice. The, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the common people has been rent. It's been torn down. And we can go directly now before the throne. We can go directly to Him and, and make these requests as His people. We read verses in the Old Testament like Psalm chapter 85, verse number 6. Wilt thou not revive us again? that thy people may rejoice in thee. Or, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember in mercy. We read these passages of reviving throughout the Old Testament, but what is reviving in our hearts and our lives look like today? And I think that's an important question, a question that's regularly asked, but I don't think that we take the time to, to actually stop and answer it. What does revival look like for the believer today? We could all in unison agree uh, that we're in desperate need of it. We would all say so. I think all of us are in agreement there. Are we all in agreement there? Yeah. Okay. Oh, we're not. Okay, let's try that again. Wake up over there in the far corner. All right. Do we need revival today? Okay. We need revival. We, we at least have to get that far tonight. That we need revival. Something has got to change in our churches and in our lives. I could be real, I could be real broad like sometimes I'm tempted to be because I don't want to be specific, but <laughs> because it's hard sometimes, but we need reviving in our church. And I need reviving in my heart. But what does it look like? Well, we'll address that throughout this evening, but more importantly, we'll, we'll look at steps that we must take in order to be prepared for revival to even take place. It's one thing to know what revival is. It's one thing to want revival. It's another thing to be ready for it. Because just speaking of it in and of itself is, is not enough. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57? Isaiah chapter 57. 
I believe, contains in this one verse a, a very important recipe, some steps that we can take in order to see reviving in our hearts and our lives. While you're turning there, I, I believe most of you are familiar with what is called the Hebrides Revival. Uh, some call it the Lewis Island Revival, but uh, I, I've always known it as the Hebrides Revival. But uh, either way, it's a revival that took place in uh, 1950s, 1940s, 1950s. Two women, Peggy and Christine Smith, 84 and 82. Peggy completely blind, and Christine was bent over with arthritis. Were burdened due to the depressed spiritual state in their village. They sensed the Lord speaking to them and claimed a promise in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3 I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. They began to pray. They began to pray in preparation for revival in their hearts and their lives. We know from the passage we've already read, it's if my people will humble themselves and pray. But there's a step further than that that I think we need to take. And I want to point something out here this evening as we just move through this verse here in Isaiah chapter 57, verse number 15. We have to set some groundwork here and before we can go any further in what revival is and being prepared for it. And so Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, I want to point out some truths here. Let's read the verse there. Isaiah 57, verse number 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is a of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. In preparation for revival, there must be a proper perspective of our Savior. It is important that we stop right here and, and not skip over this step. For revival will never take place if our perspective of who He is is not properly aligned. We will feel no need for change or improvement. Let's just work, if we can here, line by line through this verse. You see there the first statement, For thus saith the high and lofty one. Do you understand this evening that there is no one greater than God? He is the high and the lofty one. It is an amazing title that is given to him in this passage. For thus saith the high and lofty, capital O-N-E, one. There is no one greater than him. That is his title. That is who he is. He is the one and almighty God. We live in a world of elevated personality and self-worth. All around us, we see people say, oh, I'm my own God, or I'll make my own decision. Uh, I'll take care of myself. I'll do me. This is a deterrent to revival. We must have a proper perspective of who God is. There is no one greater than God, and He is perfection. 
There is nothing in creation that compares to His magnificence. There is nothing greater than Him. It's an amazing thing that you and I as the believer can go to the high and lofty one. That we have access to communicate directly to the high and lofty one. You know, in America, we have a court system. The court system works like this. You start with your state trial courts. From there, you go to the intermediate appellate court. I had to look this up and didn't know this, all right, just so you all know. Um, Go to the intermediate appellate courts. From there, you go to the state Supreme Court. And from there, you go to the U.S. Supreme Court, the final decision. Then there's all kinds of appeals along the way and this, that, and the other thing that can be done. But it's a whole process of step by step by step until you get to what is called the U.S., the United States Supreme Court. But you know, you and I have access, direct access, to the highest authority in all of existence. The high and lofty one. That is who he is. Do you understand that? What he's done for you and me when we stop and we consider who God is, that he has given us that kind of access to that kind of authority, to that kind of power, to that kind of protection, to that kind of oversight. That's who he is, the high and lofty one. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, it says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor, and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province... Marvel not at that matter. For he that is high, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be none higher than they. Man, we look around us in the world and we see the injustices that are all around us. We say, oh, they're being mistreated. And by the way, there's a, not as many in, as injustices as the, <laughs> the world likes to picture for us today. But uh, there, there is injustice around us. And we look around and say, oh, they're being mistreated or they're being mistreated. They're being mistreated or I'm being mistreated. You're not treating me the way I deserve. Do you understand that? Judges and the people of this earth can make mistakes and the rulers of a province can make errors, but there is the high and lofty one who is without error, who is without mistake and where we may mistreat one another. He will never mistreat us because he is the high and lofty one. There is no mistake in him. He is perfection. Do you see who God is? Do you see your position before Him and and how amazing it is to be in this relationship with this person? The man, Christ Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? The high and lofty one. In Psalm chapter 113, verse 4, it says, The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory is above the heavens. We picture the Lord, we say, oh man, He's in heaven. He's in the highest place there is. That's where he dwells. He's in heaven. No, he's not in heaven. Wherever you think he is that is far above you, he's higher than that. He's greater than you imagine him to be. He's he's more pure than you can imagine pure to be. He is loftier. He is higher. He is greater than the greatest. And he's my father. He's my redeemer. He's my savior. He's my friend. He's my counselor.
Oh, revival will never take place in our hearts and our lives if our perspective of who he is is not where it ought to be. He is the lofty and high one. Do you see the next phrase there in our verse, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15? For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. <laughs> this, this kind of stuff is, I love this kind of stuff. I don't know if you like this kind of stuff or not, but I do. And so I'm going to talk about it because it amazes me. He inhabiteth eternity. We think in this little box 24 hours a day, 48 hours, a couple days. You know, we got you know, all this time, 60 minutes in an hour. We, we put all these things in this little, you know, this little box and everything has a beginning and has an end. And, and here's where this starts and here's where this ends. And you know, little, uh, Ella Herrera just had her baby, a, a little Estella, four pounds and two ounces. And we're excited about that. That baby just began its life. It's an amazing thing to watch life come into this world. But that's the beginning of life, and, and life has an end, and we understand that. But then there's God, who inhabiteth eternity. He always has been and always will be. In the beginning was God. I mean, He just was there before anything formed, before there was a, a comprehension of time and existence and space. God was already there. He, he was there, and He will be there. I mean, we can't comprehend this. It's a, it just blows my mind. This is who God is. He inhabits eternity. There is no boundary for Him. There is no box that you can put Him in. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says, Who only hath immortality. <laughs> I mean, we have this. All we have is mortality right now. I mean, obviously we have an eternal uh, soul and we, we understand that, but what we address right now is this. It's flesh and bone and blood and, 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 and the frailty of our flesh and, and muscles that get stronger but then get weaker and, and, our, and our frame that uh, is, is, is capable but then incapable. And all we know is this, this mortality. But he's existed in eternity. He's immortal. He's immutable. He never changes. He's, he's been in that existence forever and he's never changed in it. <laughs> we, can't, we don't go minute by minute without change. But God always has been and always will be. And in that spectrum, he has never once changed. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing to have such a faithful God. A dependable God. An unchanging God. You know what happens when something's unchangeable? It's dependable. We can rely on it no matter what. We know it's going to be there and when it's going to be there and how we can get access to it. And, and that's what he was promising to Solomon. Hey, Solomon, I'm going to be here and this will be my habitation. And if you want me, you can come and get me. But that's who he's always been. It didn't start with Solomon. And it doesn't end with us. Because he's always been there. He's inhabited eternity. I don't know if he defines eternity or eternity defines him. I, I don't know what that is. It's just my mind can't comprehend it. But I'm amazed by it. Because once again, he's my prince of peace. He's my wonderful counselor. He's my everlasting father. 
It's an amazing thing to start to get perspective of who God is. I started reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. I didn't get past the first part of it there. It says, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to, him, uh, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. He is an amazing God. He exists outside of all the things that we comprehend. When we exit this life, we'll just be entering into what he has been existing in for all this time. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, I can enter into a relationship with this kind of God. It's an amazing thing. Let's continue in our verse. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Whose name is holy. His name is holy. You can look at yourself and you can compare yourself to others and say, oh, I'm a pretty good person. But do you understand who he is? Do you understand that you will never match up for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? One thing that inhibits us as we continue to move through this and adjusting our perspective of who God is, we must understand that He is holy. We lose that along the way. It's like salvation occurs and then time elapses and we forget that part about I have fallen short. This flesh, this frailty, who I am in my sin nature, it falls short of God. And you know what? I am still at war with my sin nature. Yes, my spirit is sinless. Yes, my spirit cannot be condemned. It's been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Through that I have access to the Heavenly Father and boldness before His throne and forgiveness of my sin and power to overcome temptation through the strength of the Holy Spirit. But my flesh is still frail and my flesh is still weak and my flesh still is sinful. And you know what? I do not measure up to who He is. He is the Holy One. He's the Holy One. That's that's His title and it's His character. He's holy, perfect, sinless, full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, love defined. He is the Holy One. That's who He is. And once again, I take a step back and I look at what I have access to just in the beginning uh, phrase here. I mean, we're leading up to revival. We're, we're leading up to what the Lord wants to do in our hearts and our lives. But before we even get there, he, he wants us to establish in our own lives. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. We allow so much corruption in our lives because of the standard we hold ourselves to. 
How do you put the Holy Spirit in your life and not walk away from that? Seeing your sin. I mean, how is that possible? The Bible says that he's the Holy One. It's his character. It's who he is. How can, how can we deceive ourselves to the point where we say or even think to ourselves, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Because when we stack ourselves up against the one whose name is holy, there's so much lacking. We don't like to hear that talk today. It's, it's offensive to many. Because we're like, oh, I'm trying my best and I'm trying to be the best Christian I ought to be. And, and that's amazing. We, we need to be doing that and we need to be striving. But we got to, we've got to be holding ourselves to the right kind of standard because the call and the command in the Word of God is be holy as I am holy. Now how do I match up? Now how do I look? Yes, preacher, we need revival. Yes, we need revival. But our perspective of who he is has got to be properly aligned before that will ever happen. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. The prophet Isaiah is trying to communicate to a backslidden people here in the book of Isaiah how they can have reviving in their hearts and who God wants to revive. But before he gives them how to get it, he gives them this instruction first where he sets this picture. He describes Jesus this way. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is, out of, uh, that is of a contrite and humble spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all dwelling together in heaven, waiting and wanting to do a work in our lives. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, or through the work of Jesus Christ, I should say, let's start in the right order, through the work of Jesus Christ and the shedding of His blood, we have forgiveness of our sins. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we have sanctification of our lives. The work of the Father is to bring revival. He wants to bring a reviving in our lives. There is no word revival or revive used in the New Testament. But there is a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. It says, For this cause... I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. It's starting to sound like revival that he's praying for. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. That ye might be filled with all fullness of God. It's an amazing prayer that Paul is praying for that church. I believe it's as close as we see to the New Testament prayer for revival. And it aligns perfectly with what we see here in Isaiah. That you may understand the height, the length, the depth, and the breadth. I pray this prayer that you can get a full picture of who God is in your life. He uses the word to comprehend who He is. That you can start to understand what you have and how amazing He is because until we start to comprehend, until we start to see that picture, until we start uh, to desire it, it will never happen. And He prays this prayer for the church that it would be granted to this church. And that they would know the fullness of God in their lives. Would you say, or would you describe your spiritual condition as being in the fullness of God? Would you describe your spiritual condition as being in the fullness of God? In contrast to that, we would have to ask ourselves, or am am I in fullness of my flesh? This is the spectrum that we have to look at here. What, what's in control? Is it my spirit or is it my flesh? Where, where on that scale? How, how much authority does God have in my life to will and to do of His good pleasure in me? If it were a thermometer, is it 90% fullness of God? Anything less than 100% ought to be dissatisfactory for us. But we live in a a time and an age where we are satisfied with less than the fullness of God. Our two ladies, Peggy and Christine, both at the end of their lives, for all intents and purposes, they are well over what has been promised to them by the Word of God, both in poor physical condition, understood that something needed to change. And so they began to pray. They began to seek God's face. They, they understood, as they, as they claimed in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, that He would pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. They understood that that God could do a mighty work and and more than anything, they were thirsty for God to do something in their lives. They had come to a point of discontentment with where they were spiritually. 
He said, you know what, God, this is us. We are thirsty and we are dry and we are parched. There's, there's nothing better. I remember to my childhood, and you may think this is gross, I don't know. I remember to my childhood and we would, we would go out and your mom would kick us out of the house you know, as soon as she could. You know, who wants 11 kids in a 1,300-square-foot you know, house? And, uh, and so uh, she would kick us out as soon as she could, and, and uh, we would be out playing all day in those hot summer days, and, you know, it was just the way it was. We didn't take water bottles with us or have camelbacks and all this other stuff, you know? And so we would be out playing all day, literally hours, hour after hour after hour, playing sports and football and basketball and hockey, and we'd, you'd get home in the afternoon, you know, just before dinner, and you'd run into the house, and you'd get your head underneath that kitchen sink, and we would drink right out of the kitchen sink. We weren't allowed to use cups. It was too many dishes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But we were just too, we were too thirsty. I didn't have the time to get that. Or, or sometimes we didn't even make it in the house. We just kicked on the outside the hose, the garden hose. and just started drinking. Or if somebody was already at the kitchen sink, we'd go out there. Why? Because we were parched. I couldn't wait any longer. I have to have it. I need it. I can't live without it. I'm dying. <laughs> Your kids ever tell you they're dying of hunger? I'm dying of starvation. <laughs> I tell my wife that all the time. <laughs> it's clearly very true. <laughs> no. Thirsty for fullness of God. Thirsty for a filling of the Holy Spirit. In recognition of who He is, it leaves us uh, inadequate, it leaves us empty, it leaves us in need. When we look at who He is and we, we consider our verse here, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, the holy one. Oh man, who am I? Does it not bring to mind the psalmist? Who am I that you're mindful of me? Who am I? It ought to leave you thirsting for more if that's what I have access to. And that's how amazing he is. Then how can I get some of it? How can I get a little more of it? Is it possible that we would be more content or satisfied with a couple extra hours of TV at night rather than this? Is it possible that we would be, become more quickly satisfied with a few extra dollars in our bank accounts more than this? Is it possible that we would value a human relationship more than we would value this with Him who I just described, who the Word of God just described, that I would put anything above that? Oh, but we do it all the time. We place material objects and things above God. The God who we're going to have to stand before one day and give an account to. Oh, there'll be no escaping that point of judgment if he is who he says he is and what we see described here. Hey, he's been in eternity. He inhabits it. He's already waiting at that judgment seat, whether you believe it or not. He's already been at the judgment seat. He's been back to us now and there. Well, actually, he's, he's all those places at the same time. It's going to happen. You're not going to escape it. 
Am I going to value the temporal things of this life more than I'm going to value the interaction that I can have and the fullness that I can have in a relationship bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ with that kind of father? These ladies were thirsty. Thirsty for the water to be poured out on a a thirsty land and for the dry ground of their lives to to be satisfied with the the springs of living water. This thirst led them to pray in their small cottage two to three nights per week from 10 p.m. until 3 a.m. After several weeks of praying like this, Peggy had a vision of her church being crowded with young people and an unknown minister preaching from the pulpit. Peggy then sent for their pastor, Reverend James Murray McKay, and she told him that they sensed the Lord was going to send revival, and that he must get his church leaders and spend every Tuesday and Friday night for prayer, and that they would all pray simultaneously, and they in their cottage and the church leaders praying, and this pastor, he believed her. You know, maybe I ought to take this seriously. And so McKay and the spiritual leaders of the church sent out a call for prayer. There was also a group of pastors in that area who all agreed to this, and for a couple months, these pastors began to pray, and spiritual leaders began to pray. Not just a couple nights a week, but every night from 10 p.m. until 3 a.m. Sounds like a little bit of work to me. But the desire was there. Desire to have something from the high and lofty one, the one who inhabits eternity, the holy one. So they began to pray and pray and pray and pray, and nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. Till one night, one of the young men stood up in the middle of the prayer and began to read from Psalm chapter 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The young man began to question himself out loud. We've been praying, Lord, for this revival. How come you haven't been sending it? We desire it. Why has it not been sent? Then he began to ask several questions of himself, which brings us to the second step for revival. The first is a proper position on who God is. The second is a proper position to petition. He began to ask himself, do I have clean hands? He asked himself, do I have a pure heart? Have I lifted up my soul unto vanity? 
And as he began to answer these questions in his own heart and in his own life, a stirring began amongst the congregants who were praying that evening. And as each individual began to answer those questions in their own heart, it turned them in a position where they understood that they were in sin and incapable of reviving. Revival is not a turning away from sin. I think we often picture it that way. Revival can't take place until we're empty of sin. It's not that all of a sudden you're just going to get spontaneously right with God. If you're going to pray and seek God's face, you have to be already cleansed. If you're going to have fullness of God in your life, you have to be empty of self. And so as one by one these congregants in the Hebrides in this Lewis Island began to cry out to God for mercy, something began to spread through the community. It was said that night by the time that dawn and the sun rose the next morning that all the lights in the community were already on. For as people had left that church and went home, the power of God working in their own hearts and lives began to spread through that community. People became acutely aware of their sin. And as they dealt with their sin, the Lord began to work. It would bring a reviving that is infamous or famous to this day. Many souls being saved. Lives being changed. A strengthening of God's work. A nation turning towards God. But they were asking for something that they were not in the right position to petition for. Is it possible that we want revival without getting rid of our sin? It's possible to want two things at the same time. And the devil's okay with a double-minded Christian. But it doesn't work for the Lord. He would rather that you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, he will spew you out. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So the Lord wants singularity in our mindset. Focused on Him. <clears throat> Where are you at as we prepare for revival? We understand who He is. And He's never changed. He inhabits eternity. His standard never changes for us. He's the Holy One. And He will never be unjust. He is high and lofty. So if He's always been there and will never change, 
then that leaves this part up to us, being in the right position to petition for revival. So then I think a good step for us would be to begin to ask similar questions like they did in the Hebrides Islands. Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? Have I lifted up my soul to vanity? Am I living for temporary things? Have I sworn deceitfully? Am I a hypocrite? Do I say one thing and do another? Do I act one way here and act one way there and here a little and there a little and a little bit different everywhere I go? You know, I I think in my heart, I'm thirsty. You know, revival, it can be defined a bunch of ways, but what a regional revival looks like is, you know, revival is taking place in people's hearts and lives all over the place. There's, There's people in our church who are having personal revival right now. It's an amazing thing to watch. It's convicting. Regional revival, as we would call it, or something taking place in a, in a church that's a, a, a gathering of people being revived is just the Lord doing the same thing in a whole group of people that he's already been doing in a bunch of individuals. So they're... Very well could be people in this room tonight and you're experiencing revival and the Lord's been working in your heart and your life and, and you just have that, you know it. If you're, if you're having revival, I'll tell you right now, you don't wonder if you're having revival. You know you're having revival. Revival is not something you miss. It's not something you wonder if it's going on. Let's not just have it individually though. It's not okay just for them to be having revival or her or him to be having revival. Let's have it collectively. Let's all get on the same page with this. Let's all be the the thirsty land, the dry desert. You have to have a proper perspective of who he is. It's a must. Understand him. You have to be in a proper perspective. Position to petition for it. All right, so we have some steps to take for revival. Obviously, if you're in this room tonight and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, uh, there is nothing to be revived. You need the beginning of new life. You need to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, ruler and sovereign one of your life. Up to now, your flesh has been in control. You are not capable of making proper decisions because your flesh is in control. You find yourself in defeat after defeat after defeat. That's because your flesh is in control. You find yourself incapable of turning away from sin and from temptation. That's because your flesh is in control. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. 
as one of his children. God is faithful to you who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. Every child of God can bear and resist and overcome temptation. But if you're not one of his children, you cannot. We look at this poor, wicked world and not in confusion or bewilderment. We look at it with pity because they are incapable of making any other decision than one which pleases their flesh. And so if that's you tonight and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you find yourself in constant turmoil, you find yourself in constant uh, disarray, begin a new life with Christ. That same God I just described, He's right there waiting for you. He's provided the way for you if you'll simply but call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And if you are a child of God, when we stack yourself up against this God that we described, how does it look? How do you look compared to Him? Not anyone else compared to Him. And where is your fullness of God? How full is your Christian life? I trust that the word as it was preached tonight will at least peak interest towards desire, if nothing else. Because until we want it, enough to go after it, it's going to remain right where it's always been. Accessible and available. Attainable. But left unused. I'm discontent. I know I need, I know I need, I need him. And so, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart and your life, evaluate where you're at, and respond in obedience to his voice. And we'll be just all right. If we'll respond in obedience to the Holy Spirit's voice, we're going to have revival. Would you bow your heads with me this evening? Father, we understand who you are. We see you high and lifted up. Tonight, this evening, I pray that we would allow you to be seated on the throne of our lives. Lord, create a thirst in our hearts, individually, collectively, create a thirst in our hearts for something to change. Lord, for the, the one who's in here this evening who doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, may they accept, begin that relationship with you. Lord, for those of us who are your children, send the Holy Spirit as a mighty rushing wind. Help us to respond in obedience to your convicting voice. If you would stand with me this evening as the piano begins to play, as you evaluate and let the Lord speak to your heart and your life, if there's anything that you need to pray about, I invite you to take advantage. Pray at your seat.